0: Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode.
1: In The Tipping Point, author Malcolm Gladwell looks at how ideas can spread like viruses. Citing psychological studies and using many examples, Gladwell shows how people, environments, and changes in an idea itself can lead to explosive growth and popularity. Today we're considering how ideas in this book, which turned 20 years old in February, apply to investing. Joining me to discuss this is Jared Watts, Client Portfolio Manager at Morningstar Investment Management. Jared, thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Drew. And Jared, this isn't your official title, of course, but you're essentially the Oprah of our investment book club. Is that right? Talk a bit about what you do to lead the book club, and we've reached more than like 30 books that we've read together. Is that right?
2: Absolutely. So as part of our investment management, it's really somewhat of a culture club for us. It's a great forum for the investment management team to really get together and go through some of the what we believe are, you know, great books that talk about not only investing, but behavioral finance and a whole host of other topics. And, you know, the tipping point, which is not really directly related to, for instance, investing, but there's a lot of parallels, I think, that we probably will touch on here. And as far as the overall goal, it's really just to get on the same page within our group and be able to kind of share information, thoughts, views in a way that allows us to really have a deeper understanding of our investment principles and how they really relate to some of the greatest authors out there that have written about a lot of these subjects that we're looking at.
1: And as you said, the uh, tipping point is not explicitly investment related. How did this book come to be, you know, part of the reading list for the, the book club?
2: Yeah, I think uh, one of the goals that we had was not only to talk about kind of a never-ending list of investment-related books, but we've read quite a few on the topic of value investing. That's really who we are at the core. But also to touch on books that are really topical in the sense that they also address important concepts that would be, for this book, the tipping point. It's really uh, kind of the nature of change. And, you know, in our business of managing money, you know, if one thing is constant, it's change. So I think this book does a really good job of talking about and discussing really what change is all about, how to think about it, what drives it. Uh, What are the contributing factors? And even though, again, you know, there's maybe some loosely connected dots to really more what we're looking at uh, from an investment standpoint, I think, again, there's a lot of parallels.
1: Yeah, and we will try to make those dots clear here in our our conversations. Let's talk about the book itself. Can you give a a brief summary of the book and maybe we can dig into some of its main points?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Just a, a quick disclaimer on the front end. The book is really interesting, and it kind of gets into a lot of different aspects as far as talking about change and, and really defining what the tipping point is. Myself, again, not an ophthalmologist, a virologist, a sociologist, or anything that's an ist uh, <laughs> at the end. Uh, so a portfolio manager, really interested in managing money and doing a good job with managing portfolios on behalf of investors. So the tipping point, you know, we thought was a worthy discussion, again, because it mainly talks about the nature of change. And that nature of change is really broadly applied to ideas, social issues. It can apply to organizations, also individuals, and even products. So the book really explores concepts of how and why change happens and the the process driving it. So Malcolm Gladwell, I think, does a masterful job at really talking about and relating this concept of tipping point by starting out talking about, you know, really the characteristics of epidemics. So he first starts by discussing the parallels between a virus and really epidemics and how just the nature of what a virus or an epidemic is. And he kind of broadly divides it into three different concepts. Contagiousness, little causes can have big effects, And that change happens, not gradually, but all at one dramatic moment. So in talking about and
1: relating... And this is really sort of the surprising point, right? That I think we expect, Mm -hmm. you know, investing is all about the future. We have to, you know, we can't buy an investment and then expect to benefit from the past performance, obviously. It's all about looking forward. And looking forward, it's kind of murky, right? And when we look forward, I think we tend to tell stories to ourselves that are more coherent, that are more sort of obvious and, you know, involve like steady change or, you know, incremental change. When in reality, the, some of the yeah. big things that shape our future are these, these sort of things that change monumentally, you go from zero right. to 060, come out of nowhere and change our world.
2: Yeah, obviously the world, uh, you know, I would say in my own opinion is in a constant state of change, right? Everything is changing around us. And that's really what humans prefer, I believe. We can process change that's a little bit slower, but what Gladwell's really focused on here is, you know, when change happens, as you mentioned, it's all of a sudden, it's rapid. Uh, It's not, maybe throw out an example, global warming, right? Maybe that's been happening and unfolding for millions of years, right? How does that apply to the tipping point? Well, an iceberg slowly melting, 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 and then all of a sudden, bam, it disappears all at once. That would be Gladwell's tipping point, right? So what led up to the iceberg just disappearing, right? It's not like kind of sticking with the iceberg theme, the Titanic, right? It hit the iceberg and that kind of slowly unfolded, but yet the ship broke up and sunk within a very, very short period of time. So that would be, you know, a couple of examples, but also uh, with respect to relating it back to viruses like the flu. He spends a lot of time on the front end of the book talking about epidemics. And also, again, how the flu is like something that actually spreads. It could be one person has it, interacts with others. Those others, you know, may not have the immune system to fight off the flu. It spreads to them, and it becomes contagious to the point where it hits a tipping point where there's no one left to actually spread to, and then it disappears all at once. Uh, so sustained. that growth
1: becomes geometric. It becomes you know, fast, yeah. much faster moving than, than we might expect.
2: He calls it uh, geometric progression. So that's where really the effect seems way out of proportion to the cause. So something small and really incremental can have a really huge impact on causing or being an agent of change, for instance – And that's really where there's, I think, a strong parallel. And he used epidemics as an example of really what the tipping point is
1: all about. And Gladwell puts change into the context of sort of three main factors, right? And those are sections of the book, the law of the few, the uh, stickiness factor, and power of context. Power of context, yes. So let's walk through those. Tell me about what the law of the few means. I think the law of the few uh, really applies to
2: what he refers to as more social epidemics. And it makes sense whenever you you dig in and he kind of really explains the components of the law of the few. So he's talking about these three groups of individuals. Think of them as maybe perhaps personality traits, for instance. He's talking about these people he calls connectors, mavens, and salesmen. So the difference, and in, in just at a high level, connectors, they're, they're really these people that instead of collecting cards, for instance, <laughs> baseball cards, these people collect people. <laughs> so they're extremely social, and they have this inherent ability and almost a need and desire to make all these social connections. So if you kind of ran across one of these individuals, and you bring up anything really, They'd say, hey, I know a person. I know, I know someone who can help you with that. I got a guy. Or I got a guy.
1: Yeah, it's those people, right? And yeah. I think we all and, know someone yeah. like that, someone who is a connector, someone who is a life of the party, knows everyone, maybe doesn't have you know, mm-hmm. a lot of really close friends, but is friends as sort of like acquaintances at a friendly level with just loads and loads of people. That's exactly right. And you can imagine why
2: these people are extremely important and really spreading kind of a social epidemic. To the point where it hits this critical mass and then it tips, right? So the connectors are one component. They're really what he called the masters of the weak ties or connections. So these aren't people that have really deep relationships with with hundreds and hundreds of people. In fact, he did this, he runs this test. He said he's done this 10,000 plus times. But basically, he writes down all these names in a phone book to a group of people. And then he He gives them this list, and they have to come up and, like, based on the first name, like, can you think of someone you know with that name? And he said, I believe, the average was for a group of people that he gives this test to, the average was, like, 35 people, right? But then there's always uh, maybe one or more of these people that they actually score 150. So you get, like, a point for each person that you know. So, I mean, these people just, like, are off the chart, right? These are the connectors. If you asked to provide, you know, really a a lot of detail about each individual person, maybe they would really struggle, right? Because in their brain, they've organized all these people as we might, you know, just kind of like a filing system. You know, Joe Smith, automotive, you know, expert, you know, and going down the list. So they know all these people, but they're really kind of loose connections and loose ties. The next are mavens. And I think the Maven, the concept of this Maven is super interesting and also may have a lot of kind of dots to really what we do in the financial services industry.
1: The example, the prime example that he gives, right, is a professor at University of Texas.
2: That's right. That's right. So this university uh, professor who really, he stumbled onto this individual. And this is exactly why a lot of people know Mavens. And he says that one half of Americans know a Maven, right? And that's a lot if you think about it. Oh yeah. And it's not necessarily that there's a lot of Mavens, but these people have such a powerful impact on people that it's hard to forget them, right? So a Maven and this university professor, he basically is an individual. They're not passive collectors of people like the connectors, but really These are people who, uh, it's kind of a Yiddish word, right, maven, and it means one who accumulates knowledge. So this professor that he provided an example of was just extremely knowledgeable in all these different areas. But but not necessarily
1: academic areas, right? It was more sort of like consumer items and, you know, what's the best washer to buy and what's the, uh, you know, what's the right sort of cable service to subscribe to? That's right. So
2: if you think about these people, they're—you know he provided a number of examples. They're collectors of information. Their true passion is not only to collect information, but also this is, this is the way that they actually interact with people. So their social interaction
1: is actually relaying
2: all this information that they've gathered, right? They're happy
1: to be that sort of expert role. They're happy to have people come to them not get paid for it, but yeah. to to just sort of be the expert that's going to point people to the right consumer product or, or whatever it is that they know so much about.
2: That's right. So exactly what you pointed out, they're more socially motivated in that this is the way they're actually interacting and connecting with people. At first, they kind of came across as these people are subject matter experts, right? But they're more than subject matter experts because I think, you know, Gladwell provided an example. Say you're a car guy, right? You love cars, but maybe while you love cars, you don't love the people (laughs) that you want to share that information with, right? That's not the driving factor. So you can be a subject matter expert in something, but that's not necessarily who you are as far as how you actually connect and how you communicate with people. Mavens, that's who they are. Right, really that's the connecting
1: difference. the information with the right person.
2: That's exactly right. Their satisfaction is not only in collecting information, but their satisfaction is really transmitting that information to as many people as possible. They want to help people. That's the driving factor behind who they are. Right? They not only have all this information, but they want to and they need to share it with as many people as possible. So you can imagine in a social epidemic, right? These people are pivotal. You can really further your cause if you're trying to drive change by finding these mavens, right? So there's a whole list of things that you might be able to do if say you're an organization and you know you have this, this product or this marketing campaign. Well, what you really need is these mavens, right? In order to kind of spread the word and not only spread it, but make it sticky, right? Because that's super important. And then the last person is the salesman.
1: And describe right? what they're,
2: they're like. Yeah. So I think, you know, the description that Gladwell provides by, you know, referring to this example of, um, is it Tom Gaw, I believe, was the name of this financial services. He was an, a financial advisor in uh, Southern California. And he was this super salesman. But a lot of people are in sales, right? But they're not necessarily fitting of this definition.
1: So, Because salespeople essentially are selling products, whereas salespeople that Gladwell is referring to are, are really selling ideas, right? They're really exactly. excited about ideas, yes. and they want people to know about them and to understand them and, and ultimately yeah. adopt them and, and make them their own. Yeah, so what separates a good salesman
2: from just an average one? Well... Gladwell talks about the number and quality of answers that they have to really what would be normal objections of anybody that they're trying to sell something to, right? And if you had to describe them, you would describe them with words like energetic, they're enthusiastic, it's their charm, they're likable, they tend to be very optimistic, and they're really positive thinkers. And another very important aspect of these people, is really their nonverbal cues. So Gladwell talks about, and it kind of gets into more uh, scientific and experimental research on how people interact. So these nonverbal cues, he provides a couple of really good examples of this. So a lot of people would say, what we're doing here right now is kind of like dancing. So we're engaging each other. You know, we're we're basically moving our hands, making eye contact. We're shaking our head, yes. We're, we're doing these things in this dance that we're having, which is a conversation. These salesmen are masters at this. And it's not even something they're trying to do. It's almost like inherent trait that they have. And really, when you collect all these characteristics, put them together, it makes for someone like that Tom Gaw, who is this super salesman and almost impossible to resist, so you can imagine in social epidemics, having these people out there, kind of on your side, furthering your cause, can be a tremendous value in your message spreading and really hitting that tipping point.
1: Let's talk a bit about you know portfolio managers or analysts or even financial advisors. You mentioned Tom Gaw. Are these three personality types? Are, are they do uh, you, you find those personality types among your colleagues on the investment team, or are you know investment people a certain type? Are financial advisors a certain type?
2: Yeah, I think there's always the stereotypes that go along with people and the roles that they hold, and I think there's probably something to that. As far as a financial advisor, what do you want a financial advisor to be? Do you want them to be? someone who's super analytical, if I throw out a couple other professions, like an actuary or like an analyst or like a, well, probably not. Why? Well, because the goal of many organizations is to have those individuals out there connecting with people, having maybe the ability to also reach out if they need information They need to know where to get that information, but not necessarily be a maven, right? Because that would likely not allow them to be very successful in their jobs, right? But then flip it around. How about a portfolio manager, right? So a portfolio manager, do you want them to be a super salesman? Well, probably not. We're all in sales to a certain extent, right? You do research. You present that research. You have to sell that research to your investment colleagues, right? So maybe there's different aspects, but you really want select individuals in certain roles to exhibit certain characteristics that allow them to be very successful in what they are
1: trying to do. Yeah, I would assume that because I know I'm thinking particular here of the select equity team who, you know, will find a stock idea, they'll bring it to their colleagues and if that person is persuasive enough, mm-hmm. presumably they would get everyone on board and say, you're making a great call, go ahead with that trade. When in reality, what we want is to have devil's advocates. We want to have pushback. We want to have like collegial pushback right. to say, have you really thought about this? Have you, have you, you know uncovered every stone? Uh, have you thought about this as thoroughly as you need to, to be making sure you're making a, you know, a good decision? And yeah, if someone is, is so winsome that you know, just their sort of personality carries the day, then I would think uh, that that might be not, you know, Mm -hmm. not ideal for the investment management team. Absolutely. Not only not ideal, uh, but that could lead to really bad outcomes, right?
2: We don't want either individual securities or perhaps an investment thesis to really make its way into our portfolios just because somebody was a masterful salesman at presenting and pushing the idea. That's why many organizations, even ours, have really put a process in place to actually guard against that, right? I mean, we don't want that to happen. We want there to be this rigorous process where we're doing the research. The research is proving itself out, right? It's not necessarily someone is taking all this subjective information and then trying to sell it based on their own subjective thoughts and feelings about it. We're looking at the hard data. We're presenting the hard data. We have all these checks and balances in place to really kind of confirm the research. It's a team effort. It's not an individual effort here. So a lot of the research takes place by teams in On the team, you have all these different dynamics at play that you also have to be careful of, such as groupthink. You mentioned one role and concept that we actually subscribe to, which is the devil's advocate role, right? And that's another way, a a really good way of pushing back on ideas to make sure that they're not streamlined and they're not challenged. So that's a role that we actively integrate into our overall process to make sure that we're selecting the asset classes that we want or the individual stocks that we want on the merits alone, not necessarily someone's ability to really sell it.
1: I want to throw something out to our uh, listeners. If you're an advisor and would like to share your opinion on uh, which of these personality traits or characteristics that a financial advisor would be best suited if they had, please do so by emailing us at simple at morningstar.com. Let's move on to the stickiness factor. Can you explain what that is? Yes,
2: absolutely. So let's think of a marketing organization trying to sell something, right? And they come up with all these really clever ways to kind of put the message out there, right? And in many cases, the message fails. It doesn't tip. Why? In many cases, it's because it's not sticky, right? You can, You're not connecting the idea
1: to the person. The person is yeah. not going away with the idea. Yeah, it's not sticking.
2: That's right. So just to maybe list uh, a couple of examples that Gladwell provided. So you know, the tobacco industry, you know, they were masters at this game. And originally they came up with Winston tastes good like a cigarette should, right? And just the wording and the framing of that. Was enough to really make that brand very successful because it was sticky. That that and it was sticky because
1: it was grammatically incorrect. Uh, Yeah,
2: absolutely. (laughs) You would think as a cigarette should like
1: not like Uh, and just that alone. Which I think today is completely gone. Like you know just you know maybe I'm skipping ahead a bit to context, but 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 today I think if someone used you know improper grammar, I don't think that would be nearly as sticky. You brought up a great
2: point. And, and I definitely want to address that. But here's one of my favorites, because it actually impacted me when I was younger. Wendy's, right? They came up with this slogan, where's the beef, right? So as a kid, we heard that and we're like, what? And then we basically ran around and everything was, where's the beef, right? I mean, this really stuck to the point where even, you know, today, I recall the commercial who basically put, the little put old it old lady. There, the little old lady. I remember a lot of the context that was surrounding that commercial campaign. So I would say that was a slogan, that was a commercial, that was highly successful, and it had that stickiness factor to it. So I know that Gladwell also talked about Paul Revere and also William Dawes, and really their overall ability to get
1: the message out that, hey, the British are coming, right? Yeah. So, so here's an example where the message is the same, the same, yeah. same amount of stickiness, presumably, but you have two, two people trying to spread the same message. One was successful and one wasn't. And why was Paul Revere successful when uh, Dawes was not? The big difference between the
2: two were really who they were, the individual. Paul Revere, as it turns out, was not only this connector, but he was also somewhat a maven. And he knew exactly where to go in order to make this message that he was wanting to spread, that the British were coming, highly successful. Each town, he knew what house, what door to knock on. He knew who would be able to then take his message and put it in action, right, to rally the rest of the town where he didn't have to, like, go to every door he knew which door to go to. And Dawes did not. He was like an average person. He was not a connector. Not saying that he was anything wrong here, but he just wasn't a Paul Revere who was highly successful as being a connector and a maven. So his message, he, you know, pretty much failed, right? He didn't have the same impact
1: that Paul Revere did. It's like spreading a fire, right? And Paul Revere knew just where to sort of light the kindling so that, uh, you know, something else would burn after it. That's right. Whereas if you're trying to light, uh, you know, wet wood or something, it's just not going to get very far. You can put a blowtorch on, you know, wet wood and it's just not really ever going to burn.
2: And I think that's a great transition into really the power of context. So let's stick with the Paul Revere example here for just a second. Gladwell talked about, obviously, Paul Revere was a connector. He was a maven. But you can still fail in having something tip, even though you have kind of the law of the few on your side. Why? The reason he provides, I think, is a really powerful one. Say it was daytime, and Paul Revere rides through the town. He knows exactly what doors to go to, right? He's a connector. He knocks on the door, no answer. Why? It's daytime. These people are maybe at work. Maybe they're out in the fields. They're not home. So now Paul Revere, what, has to go search around the fields, and and no. So in that case, maybe in hindsight, he would have failed at his mission to really bring everybody to arms. So context, the context, the environment was right. It was nighttime. These people were at their houses, all gathered in one place, and Paul Revere knew exactly what place that would be, right? So the
1: context was right for that message to really tip in other words. Let's go back to stickiness just for a second. Do you think there's any insight from the book that advisors could glean to make their messages stick better with clients?
2: Yeah, I think that in order for a message to stick, and this is just my opinion, I think it has to be well thought out, consider the source. So it has to come from someone that most likely has kind of a relationship. They have trust with their targeted audience. Mavens, right? They already have that trust. So a lot of what they're saying to all these individuals, it sticks. Why? Because their motivation is definitely aligned with what they're communicating. And, you know, someone who is somewhat skeptical of, hey, you know, this person's trying to give me coupons. This person's trying to give me all this information. Why? Right? I think that once you find out that, hey, this person is trying to help me, right? The next time I run into that person, whatever they tell me, is going to be very sticky, right? Because maybe what they told me first, hey, you really need to go to this hotel if you go to this city, right? The price is right. The environment's great. It's convenient. Great service. You go there. You experience that. Now you have a trust that, wow, this person who told me this is trustworthy i now have an experience a relationship and you build from there right so a financial advisor there's a lot of overlap i think in what they do right is it a one and done relationship where i offer them a you know transaction well that's not going to be sticky right because there's a lot of other people that probably can offer that same transaction is it to sell a stock great is your price the cheapest That's probably what's driving, you know, the individual's decision. But if you offer something that produces a lot more than just this transaction, then there's a much higher likelihood that it's going to stick and that person is going to come back to you for additional services.
1: I know a lot of financial advisors, financial planners want to, you know, make the message stick that what's really important is sticking to your portfolio, sticking to your plan, setting a plan and then sticking to it over time, letting the advisor sort of do their work to help you make good behavioral decisions. Um, But one of the points that Gladwell makes in the book is that there is an immunity to messaging that builds over time. His one example was, you know, when he first got email, he would, you know, wake up and very happily read the three emails he got and respond in, in length to each of them. And then over time, he would wake up and have 40 messages and, you know, respond with, you know, short two-line responses, and how might, you know, in an age where we are inundated with news, with messaging, with ads, how can an advisor help make sure that their communications to their clients, you know, stands out and will stick in some way with them?
2: Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point. I think this was really called the fax machine error, kind of what happens, As far as, you know, people's overall immunity to, you know, different things that take place. You brought up email. That's a great example. But, I mean, it could be broad in that it could be a message, right? So advertisements. So probably 40, 50 years ago, TV commercials likely had a much higher impact on individuals. And when I say a higher impact, it was probably more successful in... Number one, reaching them, and number two, having people actually hear the message, right? So it had a, maybe a higher probability of having some of these other characteristics sticking, the stickiness factor. In order for something to be sticky, people have to hear it first, right? So what's changed? Technology is, is the obvious one, right? Back then, did TVs actually have a mute button? Well, I don't think so. They had this knob. And, hey, I grew up with my grandparents, so I vividly remember these TVs. You want to change the channel? Hey, great. Go up to the TV (laughs) and you have to turn the dial,
1: right? My grandparents had one of those clickers where like you would literally click when you (laughs) channel up, channel down, power on, power off. That's exactly right.
2: So you didn't have the option unless you had one of your kids sitting right in front of the TV acting as your remote. You didn't have the option of muting the message, right? So you heard the message. Now, through technology, we have all these convenient functions of basically helping to screen us from all
1: this information
2: flow, right? Spam Um, folders on
1: email. Do not call register list for for phones or caller ID for phone, you know, like trying to get the telemarketers to stop calling you. That's exactly right.
2: So even if they do, get through all these technological screens that we have in place now, they still have a monumental task of trying to get the message to stick, right? So even if they do get through to you, you hear maybe the same exact message coming from 20 different companies. Let's think about this in terms of an asset management firm, right? You do something that at a very high level that is similar right? Without getting into the weeds. You're trying to differentiate yourself. You're trying to communicate that differentiation, right? And sometimes it can be very challenging. Why? Because number one, when you're putting that message out of, here's who we are, here's what we do, you're shouting at the same time as 30, 40, 50 other firms shouting at the same people at the same time, right? Right? So it's very difficult, even if someone does have a need for your service. That's why financial advisors, I think, are extremely important, right? They can somewhat act as a filter on behalf of individual investors. They do the necessary due diligence to select the products and the services that they feel are most important for their clients, the investors, to meet their longer-term financial goals right? So they're helping screen, you know, all these messages. So again, financial advisors too, you know, they're also very susceptible to becoming immune. So I think organizations who are really trying to get their message out there need to do it in a thoughtful way that differentiates themselves and really provides some sort of value in your communication, right? Because if you're saying the same thing, you're not going to get the attention, most likely, Right. Of a lot of your intended
1: audience, I think Gladwell says in the afterword as well that you know this sort of buzz, and this was written twenty years ago, as we as we mentioned before, and the afterword but I think was a year after original publication. So, so th- this is still old advice, but I think it still holds that as media and as you know, more and more messaging comes down the pike. Gladwell says that he believes people will be driven back toward their social networks, talking directly to people, finding a maven, finding a connector who can, you know, find, you know, the right person for them. It seems like financial advisors or financial planners have a role in that, being that personal contact to someone who is going to provide information in a reliable way that is, you know, maybe not, you said, you know, kind of shouting out ways, the ways that are blasted out, you know, an email to everyone, but in personal ways. I think generally we tend to respond better to those personal communications and, you know, we give our friends more time than we do, you know, a company that is selling us something or trying to uh, sell their ideas to us. I just wanted to throw in here too that There's a couple of books I've read that I just want to throw out there. I think probably give, you know, if this is a topic of interest, one is called Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath. They use a mnemonic success to help people sort of craft stickier ideas. Success stands for simple, unexpected, concrete, credible emotions and stories. And certainly I think that, you know, that resonates with me as a communicator that, uh, it has to be surprising. Why does a joke work? Why is something funny? It's because it's unexpected. You turn something around and raise that original awareness someone has when they first hear the message. The other book that I want to just throw out there is called Alchemy, The Dark Art and Curious Science of Creating Magic in Brands, Business and Life by Rory Sutherland, who is vice chairman at Ogilvy and a TED Talks speaker. A key insight there is that, you know, often. People ask you to solve their problem, or as you know, in his role at an ad agency, when in reality, what is needed is a new perspective. And so, an example he gives is you know Uber. It's not that Uber gives any better rides than a taxi cab would. It's that people hate uncertainty. And so, when you go out on the street and you are trying to hail a cab, it may be there in thirty seconds. It may be there in three minutes. It may be there in thirty minutes. Right, you you right. just don't know. And what the app does is it gives you that certainty. You can see the little car driving your way, Mm -hmm. you know, you know when it's going to be there, you know what its license plate is going to be. And so it helps take away that, that uncertainty. Anyway, back to the uh, tipping point, Gladwell's third section is power of context, which we've already alluded to. What do we learn in that section, Jared?
2: So the power of context is, I think, a a somewhat critical component in epidemics and, and tipping points. And there's actually a couple chapters dedicated to this. So I think it's definitely important, but it's probably not just important. It's probably definitely the more complicated concept, I think, that Gladwell talks about in the book. Although I think, again, he does a really good job of bringing up examples and referring to research to really back his points. And again, I think the power of context At its core it's really this nature versus nurture debate and really what he's talking about here is that he says that epidemics are are really sensitive to the conditions and the circumstances of the time and place in which they occur right in other words the environment
1: can be the driving factor of why something tips in your example before with Paul Revere that being that it was made, his ride was at midnight, not uh, at 3 p.m. When people may have been out doing work or not as accessible.
2: Exactly. And why this is important, I think Gladwell is talking about that humans aren't just sensitive to changes, you know, in context. He says that we're exquisitely sensitive to them. So it's not something that has maybe a minor influence on us. He's saying that it can have a massive influence on us and make the difference between something tipping or not tipping, right? And he has, again, all these examples where he talks about New York City crime. He talks about kind of the broken window theory that was implemented in New York that a lot of people contribute to the decline, kind of the tipping point. Of the crime rate in New York City. And I think that that's a, a wonderful story and example that he provides that really kind of allows for an understanding of what this power of context is all about.
1: How important is context when developing investment ideas?
2: So I think in kind of connecting dots, I think power of context is very important. Maybe it's how you're talking about a particular concept or how you're presenting a particular concept. And more importantly, what's going on in the market at that time, at that point in time, right? In other words, are you going to actually be trying to sell someone or talk to somebody about maybe this technology stock, this super aggressive, you know, type of investment with The characteristics that maybe aren't very desirable to someone that might even be kind of on the value side. When in the market environment, let's say that we're well underway to the tech bubble bursting, right? And maybe this individual is looking at their portfolio and seeing a major decline in all these investments that he has or she has that looks very similar to the one that you're talking about. Do you think they're going to be receptive to listening and hearing about and taking your advice? Probably not. Why? It's the context. Like the market environment is pretty much producing circumstances that would make it very difficult for that individual to really buy
1: into what you're saying. So for a financial advisor, this might mean, you know, sort of a client's uh, risk appetite, risk capacity, but also their goals, the goals that they have outlined in their financial plan and the characteristics of those goals and and then context being matching the right portfolio to that person. Is that right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Again, in the book, they talk about two different types of context. One is maybe more at the individual level. And then another chapter was dedicated more towards talking about a different dynamic of context, which is really the group power, so the impact that groups have on individuals, and the context that a group environment provides to an individual's decision-making process. And not even just decision-making process, but maybe their overall experience, right? And by that, one of the examples I think that was pretty straightforward is Is it more enjoyable to sit at home by yourself and watch maybe this comedy routine? Or does the comedy routine take on kind of a different perspective when you're sitting maybe live where that comedian's on stage and you have all these people surrounding you laughing and like providing a a different experience? So really that's the context at play there in a group versus kind of an individual So I think that there's a lot to be said about really the power of context in the group setting as opposed to, you know, someone who basically is looking at the environment somewhat
1: by themselves. So stepping back, pulling back to kind of the entire concept of the tipping point, do you think there's a tipping point in the sort of development of value over growth, growth over value? We've certainly seen growth outperforming for a long time, whereas uh, you know value is the one that over the very long run tends to be the outperformer. So if value is going to come back into some overperformance kind of stance, will it take a tipping point kind of reaction to get us there?
2: So I think that's, a, that's an incredibly difficult question to kind of answer. I know that when I pose that question to the investment club our book club looking around the room there was silence as you know my colleagues were really processing that and thinking about that and i think it's difficult to really connect the dots directly but maybe indirectly so you know value and really what makes something a value investment i think is somewhat unique to the individual investor. And I think that there's definitely, you know, periods where the markets are strongly reacting to maybe dislocations in price, but the catalyst for what makes that happen, I think is a little bit more ambiguous in maybe a little bit more difficult to really explain and pinpoint. But I will say that there are two authors that I believe have done a really good job, a masterful job, and we've read their books in our book club. One is Andrew Lowe's Adaptive Market Hypothesis, and the other is Richard Bookstaber and The End of Theory. In both of those books, they kind of bring out you know, different theories that aren't all that different. For instance, Andrew Lowe, his theory is really derived on evolutionary principles, you know, that kind of suggests that asset prices reflect much more information as dictated by the combination of environmental conditions and the number and the nature of what he terms species, sticking with the evolutionary example in the economy and by species he's talking about these distinct groups and participants and those participants would be like hedge fund managers pension funds individual investors and etc. kind of making the leap in connection to Richard Bookstaber. when you think about and he, he really talks about agent-based economics and these complex adaptive systems and emergent behavior And I'm not going to take the time to really kind of go into detail in all those different topics, but I think they make a lot more sense in explaining really how the market works and perhaps explaining also, which could be more important, as to why the market seems to not work at times, when the market's
1: imploding. Basically, that that, that concept, the the idea of emergent phenomenon and, and complex adaptive systems, essentially kind of gives us pause to say... We know why these things work because we can't know why they work. They're too complex to be able to sort of pinpoint a reason. Maybe in hindsight, we can ascribe a story to them and say, well, we think this is why it happened. But looking forward, there's so many different possible paths that we can't possibly say that that this is going to be the, the path or we can make this happen. We can't make it happen because all of the agents are acting, interacting with each other. And one intended action may have many unintended reactions. And so yeah. it, it's impossible really to, to sort of try to make it happen or to predict that it's going to happen. We have to sort of walk that path before we can know what the path will be.
2: Yeah. And I, I think that these two authors, especially, again, they do a great job of bringing not only just a logical theory in play here, but I happen to believe that kind of the facts and, and the concepts that they actually write about and discuss and the empirical research and data that backs it up, I think is a really compelling argument for how the markets work. You know, Basically, everybody's doing their rational thing by investing in, in what they're investing in, right? So you can have the collective market participants that are doing what's rational for them. But when you put them all together, it takes on different dynamics. And these interactions and really the environment produces something that's different, that looks and feels irrational, right? So really, kind of the concept of more market mechanics and the participants in the markets and really how that explains market booms and busts. But if you haven't read those two books, I would highly suggest reading those. I think Gladwell, again, in talking about the power of context, you know, again, the overall environment could definitely have an impact. And not only that, but also investors or even hedge fund managers. Think about who they're actually reading, who's influencing them, who they're talking to, to actually come up with their conclusions and then act on them, right? So really individual investors, especially let's say you belong to like an investment club. So that could have a powerful effect on You formulating your opinion about investment products or, you know, what you find suitable for yourself. So I think, again, the overall context, you know, behind why people do the things they do, you know, can definitely be explained by Gladwell's concept of the power of context.
1: And I, I just want to go back to what I said. I perhaps sounded a bit nihilistic in what I said, that that it's just impossible to know. My point really was that those books drove or trying to drive investors to, to the idea of saying, you know, what's needed is a probabilistic outlook on That's on right. the future. We can't know for sure what's going to happen, but we can know what's maybe more likely or less likely in certain situations. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that, that uh, you can certainly see that in our, our investment philosophy here at Morningstar Investment Management. You bet. It does
2: also touch on and kind of at the core is this behavioral component as well. And a lot of the books we've read in our book club deal also with all these cognitive biases. So we've spent a lot of time discussing kind of what those are, how they impact people, and really what you can do through kind of a common term of the second level of thinking to kind of overcome and, and combat these biases that are are really inherent in all of us. So I think, you know, you could probably kind of expand this power of context into, for instance, the uh, the rule of 150, talking about group dynamics and what companies can do to really either have better outcomes, so in other words, have information flow tip within their company and have success in really your overall employees working together and coming up with the next new thing or, or achieving their objectives, right? So this uh, concept of, again, like channel capacity, which is, is more individual, it's more behavioral, right? Saying that, you know, basically people only have so much capacity, to take in information. And I think that's where connecting some of these dots, the immunity (laughs) has a lot to do with also this channel capacity, right? So I think in order to successfully handle this particular behavioral phenomenon, companies can really do certain things to help themselves. So in other words, with a financial advisor, the financial advisor, would basically have all the information an investor needs in order to achieve their objective right so Cladwell talks about a married couple for instance the married couple take on different roles in the relationship and again you don't need to actually know for instance if it if it's your children's schedule and say the husband is the primary caregiver of the children just the flip around the stereotypical uh roles perhaps you know the wife doesn't need to actually know every single detail about their child's schedule why because she can go right to her husband who has that information so she doesn't have to actually somewhat deal with that information storing that information she knows right where to go so an investor financial advisor relationship could take on a similar dynamic right the individual investor doesn't need to spend a ton of time doing all this due diligence and research that perhaps the financial advisor that they, they trust has already done. You've paid them to do yeah, that. Yeah. You already know where to go to get this. You got a question, pick up the phone, get that information. You have a financial advisor who is storing <laughs> all that information on your behalf. So I think, again, it's a great concept. It's something that every organization can take away and perhaps, you know, kind of further as far as how they're positioning the value add of either the collateral that they produce or in in talking about the value add of their financial advisors, for instance.
1: Jared, thank you so much for joining me to discuss this fascinating book today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thanks for listening today. Again, if you want to get in touch with us, please do so by sending an email to simple at morningstar.com. For Simple But Not Easy, I'm Drew Carter. Bye for now.
0: This podcast is for informational purposes only, and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.